Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and uh, David Scott this week is on assignment yet again. Uh, he's off to Singapore on the uh, annual pilgrimage to the Grand Prix, um, so uh, he'll be getting his uh, annual uh, dose of uh, gasoline and noise. Um, but our guest this week is Jordan Alessio, a chief economist at ABC Bullion. He's been on the show a few times. Welcome back, Jordan. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm very excited to be here. Look, uh, we've got a packed agenda ahead. We're going to talk gold, we're going to talk cryptos, we'll inevitably talk rates, uh, probably some EM along the way. They're all sort of tied up together. Uh, and we'll um, talk about some of the uh, domestic challenges um, uh, towards the end of the show too. But look, uh, this weekend, it is 10 years since the GFC. Now, like the GFC, particularly, I think for a lot of our audience, is a bit like, you know, uh, one of those things our generation, um, like everybody from our parents' generation remembers where they were when Kennedy was shot, when they heard Kennedy was shot. We remember when, where we were when Princess Diana's, uh, when Diana was killed, uh, where they were on uh, when the towers came down uh, on September 11, 2001. Um, but then also when Lehman Brothers happened, everybody has their stories from that time. And uh, uh, Jordan, you were in, uh, in finance at the time and it uh, must have been a wild ride. Yeah, absolutely. So I was um, living and working in the UK, um, like obviously many young Australians do go over there. And, and I spent the better part of eight years working there. Um, and at the time, I was working for Casanova Capital in a sort of risk and, and analytics role. Um, fantastic job, wonderful company to work for. Um, but it was it was it was crazy. The the one the probably the most captivating memory I have of the of the time was our office was located on Moorgate, and so you used to get out at Bank Station, walk past the Bank of England, and trot on up to our office in Moorgate. But from where I was walking into the office one day, I could actually see this huge lineup of people just on the street. And it turned out that it was there was a Northern Rock branch um, on Moorgate just a few hundred metres up. And it was almost this really sort of surreal, almost voyeuristic experience of, of watching all of these people. They were waiting sort of for the, the, the branch doors to open to go in and see if they could, you know, basically if their money was there, if they were going to be, if they'd lost all of their deposits. So that to me was one of the most sort of captivating images and it felt really, obviously it was sad and it actually felt really uncomfortable because you almost felt like you were, as I say, it was like looking at someone's trauma in a, in, a, in a really strange way. So I remember looking at it for a few minutes, just sort of stood outside and then I was like, you know, well, I actually just need to go in and go back to work and, and get on with my day. I feel like I'm, you know, I shouldn't be here watching this. Um, so that, that was one memory that really stood out. But there was a couple of other things. One, I was actually contracting at the time, um, which had been fantastic. And, and I ended up being absolutely, you know, safe in, in, in my role. But my, my uh, direct boss, who was wonderful, she reported directly to the CEO and she did call me down on a Friday afternoon to go, oh, Jordan, can we, you pop down to have a chat? And I was, like, I was like, oh, my God, maybe it'll be uh, farewell drinks for me this Friday. But it was actually just a, a regular catch-up. I, I was um, yeah, in no way affected personally employment-wise. A lot of my colleagues, um, not so much at, at Casanova but around the industry, um, obviously lost jobs. Cas was a, a luckier place to be because it had such a large sort of charities and private client family office um, style business. So clearly funds under management dropped as the market dropped, but probably didn't suffer as much as a lot of other um, firms in the industry did. Um, 
The other personal thing that really stood out, and I was thinking about this earlier today, was what happened with the Aussie dollar versus sterling. So when I got to the UK in around 2003, pound sterling Aussie, the, 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 the cross rate was roughly three to one. And over the next five odd years, it dropped almost all the way to two to one. So whilst I was getting like really good pay and pay rises in the UK, translated into Aussie dollars, the money was sort of going backwards almost. But in, in the space of about two weeks, the pound went from about two pound, like $2.10 to about $2.60. Wow. And I remember that really clearly because it was like, my God, even though there's all this chaos unfolding, this is actually a great opportunity to get some money yeah, back into some, Oz. Yeah, send some money home. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just some really, yeah, really kind of quite profound memories of, of the time and, and – that, yeah. that that Northern Rock story that you you tell, did um, you may have seen the column, uh, just a chilling column in the FT. Um, I think it was earlier this week by John Authors when he was talking about being uh, in New York um, at the time that it was all starting to gather pace. This liquidity problem was starting to to gather pace, and he had he happened to have um, a fairly significant whack of cash uh, in uh, a bank. And he knew that there was deposit insurance up to a certain level. Sure. Uh, and that uh, what he needed to do was go and split his his savings across a number of accounts so that they'd all have the natural amount of deposit insurance. Say, call, call it 100 grand, right? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, he tells this story about going into this bank and... There were queues of people there, but it was all Wall Streeters in suits, right? And he walks up to the counter and he said to the lady, I want to take half my money out and use it to set up an account across the street. And she had already been in contact with her counterpart across the street. So they were having this conversation because lots of customers were coming in to do this, to break apart their accounts. So it was basically an incredibly civilized bank run. Sure. It was like the people who knew what was happening we're all coming down and going, right, I've got to do something about this. Yep. Uh, so they're just absolutely chilling. And others said, to his credit, that he probably, well, he could have written the story, but had they published that, what would have been the effect? Yeah. Basically, to say, like, all he needed to do was to get a photo of these people and caption it and... Um, and explain what was happening. There's your headline put story. put that on the front of the FT and boom, off you go, right? Yeah. You're off to the races. Um, so so they didn't. And I thought it was a really interesting story, but also a little bit spine tingling. Um, I spoke to somebody else this week who was um, managing money, uh, many Australian equities uh, at the time. Uh, and he was just recounting his war story. And he was saying that... Uh, uh, he got a call from a, a client uh, saying that they wanted to liquidate their portfolio, right? There was a lot of calls like this, but this sure. was a particularly big client. And they were like, okay, well, you want to sell? Um, and uh, it was like, well, how much of it do you want to um, liquidate? 20, 30%? And uh, they said, uh, no, 100%, all of it, and immediately, please, thank you. And the client's account for Australian equities was $400 million. So they had to get on the phone to the brokers saying that we're trying to sell 400 million bucks worth of stuff. Uh, my particular memory is um, at the time, I, I don't do this anymore, but my, I had this radio alarm clock that would switch on exactly at the time every morning that the 6 a.m. news came on the ABC. 
And you know that uh, jingle that the ABC Radio News plays, where it's still the same, it's been going forever. So that plays, um, and that familiar voice comes on, the newsreader's voice comes on the radio, and he says, um, American investment bank Lehman Brothers has collapsed. And I just remember, like, sitting bolt upright out of bed, taking a big, deep breath, and going, oh, my God, this is it. Um, the, the, I know there's been a few talks of there's, maybe there's some problems, but a big Wall Street bank going down, this is a problem. Yeah, it's real, it's real now. Yeah, yeah, it's real now. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I think there's been a couple of interesting things that we've certainly learned. One is, one has been the power of um, uh, a government and regulators to do something, or government, government, governments and central banks to do things, right? So um, the big problem, I think, with the GFC and why so many banks almost went to the wall was because of the liquidity crunch. There was just no cash available, right? Um, uh, one, that is not going to happen again. Um, uh, part of that is um, the big moves that global regulators and domestic regulators have made in terms of capital requirements um, for financial institutions. So um, they're just better capitalized. Um, so that's one thing that they've kind of uh, managed to tackle. Um, I suppose the issue is, you know, the next big surprise is going to be exactly that. It'll be something we don't like. I mean, there's a lot of worry and we're going to talk about, uh, obviously, about um, hedges against the um, trouble that's coming down the track when we get on to talking about gold, right, which has been in a really interesting space. But um, the what people have been talking about lately has been this, all of this geopolitics and like how trade policy is going to what the economic impact of that might be. Uh, and that's incredibly hard to measure, right? Um, uh, incredibly hard to predict. Um, some of it is, is emotional. Um, but then it's also down to individual policy decisions by um, sovereign governments, right? So, uh, so this like the market has no way of really pricing, pricing for it. that. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Um, it, yeah. How do you price Donald Trump, right? Yeah, so, yeah. It, it almost reminds me of you know in the old days we'd talk about from a nuclear perspective, you know, the whole mutually assured destruction thing. You know, the rhetoric that occasionally comes from the White House, or probably more than occasionally, and then the, the inevitable response that comes from Beijing, people, it's very easy to see why people get caught up in this, oh my God, there's going to be this trade war, it's going to, you know, bring growth to a standstill, if not global recession, it'll be the spark for GFC Mark II. But the reality is, um, you know, people are playing to their political bases, there are saner heads involved in these discussions. And neither China nor America have a real interest in bringing each other to their, you know, knees in any way economically. There'll be tit for tat, and there is that, and we're we're seeing that with you know tariffs here and there. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that things will be as bad as what some um, you know commentators are making it out. And to your point, I think there's also an element from from the markets of for want of a better term, like just fatigue, fear, fear fatigue. In that, yeah. as you say, you can't price it in. So why, you know. It's almost sort of being ignored. I mean, the the performance of um, you know certainly gold um, you know hasn't hasn't lifted in any way. In fact, it's been declining. So there's not really been any move there in terms of a, a risk hedge. Um, it's not just gold. Other risk hedges are sort of out of favour right now as well. So um, whilst investors are nervous, they're still 
they're still sort of fully invested or close to fully invested in risk assets, which is a you know it's a curious thing, but it is what it is. Um, they, I remember Nick Gartside, who's uh, uh, head of fixed income trading at uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, explained this to me last year. He says, "Look, you see one headline about uh, a North Korean missile launch, and you're selling things, and then you see another one and another one, um, and once you're up to the fourth or fifth um, time that you see this surprise headline." Um, and you realize that nothing goes terribly wrong after the first or second, that the market gets a little bit desensitized to them. Uh, and I think that's a really good analogy for what's happening with a lot of the trade stuff, right? So um, the, the US could, um, I mean, there's talk now that there might be some talks, uh, which has got Asian markets, we're recording on Thursday, it's got Asian markets up a little bit today, and it's a little bit of a relief rally overnight in the US. Um, so. So there might be some progress. We're, we might be see, about to see some progress on this. But at, at any point, the you know, U.S. trade representative could come out with something that's a lot more belligerent or whatever. And I think that could, you know, spark. And I think what's interesting is where, how precarious um, Chinese stocks are at the moment anyway. They're, you know, effectively multi-year lows um, and, uh, and looking rather weak. So if something there was to tip those over and you get a lot of foreign money getting pulled um, from uh, from Chinese markets, then we could see something, uh, you know, uh, we could see, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. To your point, though, that, I mean, I think they're already off 25% from their intra-year high, so there's already been, you know, fairly significant selling. I think the other thing that's interesting, you know, you said before that um, in reference to the gentleman talking about you see one headline, you see two headlines, you see three headlines. It's also funny that compared to 10 years ago, to your point, when you heard that Lehman Brothers had had failed, you heard it on the radio as part of waking up because it's, you know, 10 years ago, we actually didn't have Twitter. We didn't have iPhones that we were glued to where, you know, if you wake up at six o'clock by 6.05, you know what the gold price is, you know where oil is, you know what the NASDAQ or Wall Street's done overnight. So like we're... In 2018, there's just massive information overload and also then the kind of the impact of a headline, as it were, is vastly diminished because there's just so much noise in markets now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's that's another factor that, that has changed things. And, and, and you know, that I, I sometimes think about that now that even when I, I, I moved back to Australia in 2010 and when I first moved back here, I used to read a book on the ferry on the way to work because I still didn't, you know, in 2010, you didn't have access to market data on your phone anywhere near the way you do now. So yeah. it's, it's amazing how much that's changed in, in the last 10 years. Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the things that the GFC for me really underlined um, is uh, the way that it, I think people understood this already, but it just made crystal clear in the most spectacular way possible how connected everything is uh, in the global economy or and in and particularly in advanced economies um, so that really there was I think that was a fundamental sort of um, like a sort of checkpoint for the globalization project or you know the progress of globalization sure. it was like people are now hundred percent clear this whole thing about the butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon and there's a hurricane in the Atlantic um, that is so clear to people now which is why people um, you know, do follow stories like the European debt crisis very closely. If Italian bonds explode, um, people tune into that. Um, you know, you get the lira in meltdown, Czechos lira in meltdown, um, and people will follow that. It's because, and I think that's obviously, you know, part of people's 
much clearer understanding now of how interconnected everything is. Um, so um, speaking of things being uh, interconnected and um, speaking about um, assets be getting beaten up, etc., gold. Um, right. So you work in, um, you know, uh, I suppose ABC Bullion does does gold sales and does, you know, um, uh, bullion security. Um, uh, you know, uh, you, I think one of Australia's only, or you, Australia's major bullion printer, aren't you? Uh, Into yeah. largest private refinery, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. That, that's exactly right. So we, um, you know, Australia's second largest gold miner in the world. Country produces the better part of 300 tonnes a year, um, and we're the largest private refinery and private dealer in the country by by some margin. Yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously, um, you know, uh, the the whole. Atmospherics around gold have been, and particularly, been on a stonking run since the GFC. Um, but it has come back a lot, and it's really interesting because gold is seen as an inflation hedge. Uh, we've got inflation rising, um, and also um, it's seen as a safe asset at, a at times when uh, at times of uncertainty. Um, traditionally, um, so explain this to me because. Um, it's. Uh, I think it's been fascinating. Gold's um, come back an awful lot in, in U.S. dollar terms, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you'll lay this out. But uh, it's come back a lot this year, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah it has. So I think in USD now, um, I was looking at figures to the, the start of September um, before coming on the show today, and in, in U.S. dollar terms, it's now down around seven percent for the year. Aussie dollar terms, it's basically flat. Um, Countries like the, the the major consumers, India, China, China in, in renminbi, it's basically flat rupees. It's up a little, um, so it's very much been th this year. It's very much been a story of dollar strength is gold price weakness. Now, a lot of people think that that is the start and end of the gold conversation the the whole time, um, and you know if it, it, it it'll go up if the dollar goes down, and it'll go down if the dollar goes up. That's not always the case. If 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 the stock market's weak or if inflation really picks up. Um, then the dollar could be rising, but gold will do well um, at the same time. But what we've seen this year, um, despite the fears of a trade war, um, despite the volatility in, in EM, um, you know, we've still seen the Fed raise rates. Inflation's picked up, but it's not really a problem yet. And we've still seen this sort of record run on Wall Street, which is now you know, making headlines as the longest um, you know, bull run in equities that, that we've seen in 100 plus years. So if you were to sort of say, like, like forget the macro backdrop for a second, if you were to sort of say, well, what is the worst environment for gold to do well in? It's an environment where equities are rising, tick, where the dollar's strong, tick, and where interest rates are rising, so tick. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you yeah. Know, you've actually got the performance of gold, it kind of doesn't make sense in this, when you look at some of those macro factors, but when you look at what's going on in the market, it's understandable that gold in US dollars is, is not doing particularly well. Um, but for Aussie dollar investors, for... Um, investors in countries where gold is very popular across Asia, the Middle East, gold is is more than doing its job. Yeah, appreciating um, in, in local countries. Yeah, and even, yeah. even our local gold mining industry is in pretty rude health. I think we're now, um, uh, I think we, we produced the, the largest amount we have in 20 years last year, um, and a lot of the miners are making very good money because Aussie dollar gold is around $1,700 an ounce. Um, I don't know, so did you see those rocks that those guys dug up yeah. in WA? Uh, he's, uh, what, there was um, kil kilograms of yeah, gold on, yeah. on these rocks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, look, everyone, um, you know, everyone loves a good gold mining story yeah, when, sure. when the stuff is found. Um, you know, it's a, obviously a much higher risk, but potentially much more higher rewarding space. So, um, yeah, look, I think gold has had a, it, it, you know, it's, I, I would have thought it would have performed better than it has, but given the way markets have 
reacted or we might say not reacted to the sort of trade war fears in the EM side of things, then actually it, it kind of makes sense. Gold is where it is. So you had a note out recently, and I think it was really interesting observation, a couple of really in- interesting observations in it, re- in it which were, you know, um, some commentators openly questioning if gold will die out with the boomer generation. Um, and, you know, ar- the argument that people might be questioning whether or not society will continue to see gold as a store of value. Um, and you also pointed out that the last time speculators were this bearish on gold was in 2001 when gold was under 300 US dollars an ounce, which I, I find unbelievable. Uh, and given that it's trading at about, what, 1,200? 1,200 US, yeah. 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 Um, and about to, you know, go on a, you know, a 10-year bull market. Um, so maybe you can talk about the speculative positions uh, and how that's uh, having, you know, how that relates to um, some of the other uh, hedges that are around there. Yeah, so what we've seen in since the start of the year, speculators that are going short the gold market have increased their positions by a factor of 10. Uh, speculators that have gone long the gold market have paired their positions back to one third of the levels they they were at in the past. So there are still hedge funds and short-term traders that are long gold, but they're now being sort of dwarfed by the number of speculators that are short. And that's a very uncommon scenario to to see happen. It it almost, it very rarely happens. And when it does, it almost always coincides with a a bottom in the gold price, because it's a very clear indicator of how bad sentiment is towards gold. Um, we've seen a very similar thing in the, the silver market as well in terms of speculative positioning there. The interesting thing about gold and, and silver is that the, the ratio between the two is something that precious metal investors ov- often pay attention to, the gold-silver ratio. Very easy to calculate. You divide the, the price of gold by the price of silver. And right now, it's at a point, it's about 85 to 1. Now, the last time, the last two times it was at that level were back in 2003 and then again around 2008. Um, if you were to look forward two or three years from there, gold was up 70, 80% both times. Silver was up over 100% and it had more than doubled both times. So we're at, there's no guarantee that history repeats, obviously, um, but we're at a, a, a level now um, in, in the gold market where you sort of, it's kind of like peak pessimism, um, which is seen through people writing articles saying, well, is gold just going to die? You, you don't see those things at, in 2011 when gold's at 2000 bucks an ounce. Does does short covering work the same way in the gold market as Ab- it does everywhere else? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and to put some maybe some be- more context around just how short the market is for gold and, or how much that's changed. Um, when you're talking sort of 200,000 contracts short, that's how that's how much metal is effectively being sold. If you, if you convert that to tonnes, it's basically 600 tonnes of gold. So it's two times the total annual gold production of Australia, which, as I said, is the second largest gold miner in the world. So it's real money that people are betting that the price is going to fall. And that's short term. It's hot money. It could very easily turn around and, and go the other way. Um, the other thing that's interesting is... You know, there there are essentially three ways to get, you know, exposure to gold. You can obviously go and buy the bars and the coins, which is what we do. You've got speculators and and commercials that will hedge their positions there using futures. And then you've got a lot of financial intermediaries will use ETFs. Now, in the last three months, we've seen about 130 tonnes of gold sold out of ETFs uh, all around the world, predominantly in North America. So this is gold ETFs getting sold off. That's yeah, right. So yeah. so people going, oh, look, I don't want gold anymore. I'm going to go rotate back into equities or whatever. So they're selling off their, their gold holdings through the ETF. So 
in, in three months, we've seen 130 tonnes come out of there, which is roughly $13 billion of, of value. That is, with the exception of um, a, a three-month period when Trump got elected and equities rallied much to everyone's surprise, um, and also 2013, which was the worst year for gold we've seen in 20 years, that's the fastest pace of ETF sales on record. So, you know, you look at what's happening in the ETF market, you look at the futures market, which we've talked about, um, you know, the, the, the fact that you're seeing articles about, you know, is gold going to die out with the boomer generation? Um, it's a, it's a, a sign of a market that is kind of close to capitulation, um, which for longer term investors is typically a good sign. Shorter term investors, it's understandable that they're nervous to sort of catch a falling knife as it were. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, look, um, speaking of catching falling knives, uh, you have um, been very interested in the crypto space um, for <laughs> a, a long time, right? So you've followed... Um, uh, you, you wrote a great paper last year on, on uh, Bitcoin, gold, and, and, and the future of money. Um, and uh, it was a really great overview of how cryptos work and all of that kind of stuff, and also warned about the potential for that. Uh, I think it was in November that you published it. I know it talked about the potential for there to be a pretty significant bubble building. Um, but also, I think very presciently pointed out that all of the underlying technology is something that's here to stay, um, which, uh, you know, is um, exactly, I think, exactly right. Um, the question remains over the crypto market right now. We've just published something today on Business Insider about um, a couple of the exchanges here in Australia that are trying to get um, uh, approval from regulators uh, to um, set up um, uh, things like maybe an Australian crypto ETF. Uh, so, which would attract more institutional money, uh, all of this kind of legitimizing, right? That that um, this creeping legitimizing of the crypto market, which is so important for its future, because one of the things that dings the prices in the crypto market is when, say, the U.S. Uh, Securities and Exchanges Commission says well, no, we're rejecting that proposal for that type of exchange. We're not going to treat that as that kind of asset, all of that kind of stuff, and um, prices get get smashed. Now, I do have an observation on that, which is that if you're in an asset which where the price falls because the regulator says, we think that's a bad idea, um, maybe you should be thinking <laughs> yeah. about the... Right. Yeah. It, is a, it is a warning sign. Yeah, yeah. it is, yeah, yeah. Um, but look, you obviously... Um, uh, you know, maintained your interest in this. Um, what have you made of it this year? Look, I think um, it, it's it's really interesting because you're, you're right. I published that report November last year, around November. Bitcoin was around ten thousand. A month later, it was at twenty thousand. So I copped a fair degree of hate mail from, or, or not not. It was more you idiot mail kind of thing because you know at the time it was just this you know euphoria like we haven't seen. It, it was bigger than dot com. Maybe not in terms of dollars invested, but the speed of the price appreciation and people's fervor and belief in it. I think was was far superior. I was working in a in a discount broker during the dot com era, so I remember that as right. well. Um, so. Uh, you know, yeah, we've had the speculative mania. I think even Vitalik, who you know started Ethereum, he's like, "Look, we're not going to see thousand x gains anymore. That 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 part of this market is done now. It doesn't mean there's not a role for blockchain 
um, and cryptocurrencies at all. Um, but, you know, if you stop to think about it, you know, Bitcoin's core promise was that it was going to replace the US dollar, replace gold, become this global reserve currency, right? Well, global reserve currencies aren't meant to move up by, you know, 100% mm. a month and then down 60% the next month. If that's if that's the future of money, then global commerce is going to collapse and we're, we're going to be back in some kind of barter system. So let, let's hope that that's not the future. Um, one of the things that's... It, it was... It was really interesting being ringside um, not only last year but this year for it as well because it, it, it put a huge dent in the gold market to start with because we saw a huge number of people coming and selling their precious metal holdings to go and chase crypto. The, the sad thing is that the peak for that was definitely in Q4 last year. Mm. So most of those people have actually lost money. Um, I, would be, I would suggest that if you look at um, companies like Coinbase and the like and their acquisition of clients um, – just based on when all of their accounts were being opened, if, if people were opening an account and going long, well, given where prices are today, almost certainly most of most people in crypto have lost money, even though some early adopters have, have made out like bandits and, and good luck to them. I, I think there's still a number of... I, I, to, just to, I, I met with the CEO of a, um, a, a cybersecurity company, pretty big one, um, uh, called Malwarebytes. Um, and they do... Um, uh, virus diagnosis uh, after you've been hacked, right? And it's like the solution after you've got some problem with your device. Malwarebytes is the bit of software that comes in and helps to clean it up. Um, and uh, he was saying one of the things that happened late last year and early this year was all of that, all of the Bitcoin um, uh, ransom demands, uh, all of those things uh, inflated and deflated with the price. So all of that activity from hackers, they've just got bored, you know, because sure. Bitcoin's not worth as much anymore yeah. and it's like it's too volatile. So, you know, even if you do successfully manage to um, extort a certain amount of Bitcoin out of some hapless, you know, uh, a person who's decided to, you know, to chuck a whole load of money into it. So you do manage to get some out of them. Um, by the next day, it, it might be worth uh, half of that or less or, you know, um, like Ethereum, uh, which was the, uh, the great white hope, is down something like 85% yeah, um, uh, this year and has been absolutely beaten black and blue this month, yeah. um, which I found really interesting because it was typically moving fairly in line with Bitcoin, yeah. um, but they've kind of decoupled now. Um, so there is this this continuing um, I know, know. sort of uh, like, I just think this 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 these massive questions over where this is all going to end up. Um, and I do worry, like, as you say, about the poor people who are going to have lost money on it. Yeah, I think it's, it's again, it's one of those things where if, if, if you're a young, you know, early 20s and you, and you want to invest a couple of grand in Bitcoin or, or crypto and you've, you've made money or you've lost money, probably doesn't really matter. It's not going to ruin your life financially um, or, or it's not going to make your life either for most people. The, the real risk is people that are, are punting large portions of their super fund or, uh, you know, there was talk of people borrowing, taking out lines of credit on their houses so that they could then go and chase crypto. I mean, those kinds of things are where you really go, well, this is why we need regulators and why there needs to be governance and control around, around the markets. And, and one of the things that is still painfully clear to me, and, and I was doing some research on this as, as late as this week, because um, I actually thought, you know what, it might be worth having a little double in Ethereum given it's off 85%. So I went to open an account with a, an exchange here in Australia. I won't say who it was, but I thought, look, I better, I'll have a read through their terms of business here. 
And very, very clearly from what I can see, and I've emailed them for clarification and they won't give it to me, um, I said, look, if I give you funds, is that held in some sort of special purpose trust account so that if something happens to you, that money is still ring-fenced? Didn't answer that. And then if you actually read through their terms of business, if you buy or if you think you've bought Ethereum or Bitcoin or another crypto through this exchange, you actually don't have legal title to it. The exchange has legal title to it yeah. and you have a beneficial interest. Um, and then, you know, you know, clause 26A or whatever it is, is, by the way, you indemnify us against any losses. Uh, you know. So people, it's ironic because people have bought into this dream of a trustless system but actually, you're trusting these private businesses that are operating in an unregulated market, selling an asset that doesn't physically exist. Yeah, yeah. So, like, <laughs> it's actually the most high-risk speculative investment you could possibly yeah, make. Absolutely. Yeah. But oh, look, I still think you know blockchain has a future. I, I you know how big that future is it remains to be seen. But um, there's been vast amounts of of money and human capital thrown at it. So I think we have to be we have to give it the benefit of the doubt. The ASX is still dabbling with it and, and looking at you using it. Um, so that's that's a good thing. I also think possibly there'll be a role for uh, proper gold-backed cryptos where there is then a tangible backing for the asset rather than it just being, you know, digits and, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a code essentially. Um, so I, I'm still, I still think the space is worth observing, but much like I said a year ago, if you're investing, only invest what you can afford to lose and, and yeah, Pay, you know, be interested in the dream, but don't buy into it fully, I suppose, if that if that's the you know, if I can say it that way. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with Jordan Alicio, Chief Economist at ABC Bullion. Uh, look, um, let's talk about a few things that have been going on uh, uh, back at home. Uh, we had jobs data this week. Uh, looks like the um, the you know forty four thousand uh, jobs added in August. Looks like the dream run of uh, of pretty impressive job creation in Australia um, uh, continues um, a, a pace. And um, part of it is the you know population uh, sorry participation rate edged up uh, again. So you know market signals clearly at work again. People know there are jobs out there, so they go and find a job. They decide that they are back in the workforce. Um, and I think maybe part of it is, you know, the employers doing a better job of creating more flexible positions for people. I think that's um, much more of a visible thing uh, around now so that it makes it easier for people to come back into the workforce if they've been out for a while, uh, which I think is great and great for families, uh, great for people who've been out of work for a while and are kind of struggling with, you know, how they actually do get back in. Uh, so that's been good. Um, so, and, But we're still playing this very, very long game uh, we've had these out-of-cycle uh, rate hikes from three of the four major banks, um, and uh, Westpac has pushed out its call for RBA rate rises now all the way to 2021, um, which makes for for me, um, uh, you know, as the editor of a, a business website with a keen interest in economics, I think about the first Tuesday of uh, the month for... Uh, the next couple of years, and I kind of can't get excited about it anymore. <laughs> Take the day off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, yeah, look, uh, uh, and the, yeah, the the, the RBA. I mean, how how long can you persist with this narrative? Look, you know, this 
Wages is expected to rise, but it will be gradual. And the next move in interest rates is likely to be up. But, you know, um, it is. It seems like this is going to take a long time, particularly if the banks are doing what they've been doing, hey? I, look, I, I totally agree. I think um, I've been uh, impressed with... Um, obviously, last GDP result was a you know a bit of a barn burner, really, um, and today's employment report was was excellent as well. So clearly, it's a um, the glass is half full when it comes to the Aussie economy. There are people out there that are um, you know doom merchants, as it were, and say you know housing is going to collapse fifty percent, and you know GFC you know Mark II, the epicenter will be Australia. Um, I don't I don't think that's correct at all. Um, but a couple of points that you mentioned on um, one. Uh, when it comes to wage growth, it is still pretty much non-existent, and a big part of that is underutilisation is still around 13%. So it's great that there's more jobs being created, um, but a lot of that is, you know, we've got a lot more people in the country because you know, immigration's so high. Um, so you know, when you look at a sort of GDP per capita or income growth per capita, those figures really haven't gone anywhere for years, and that's why Australians are, are starting to struggle a little bit. Um, I think it's really insightful that the savings rate's fallen all the way back to, to 1%. Um, and and actually, credit card debt is increasing. Yeah, well, yeah. I was going to say that. I noticed um, David's article, I think it was yesterday, that credit card balances were up 5% year on year, which was the fastest pace of credit card growth in 10 years. Now, the, the optimist looks at that and goes, oh, great, Australians feel comfortable getting out their plastic again. My view is it's a sign that actually you know, household balance sheets are so stretched that they're feeling the need to utilise credit in order to sort of, you know, keep keep the, you know, keep the, yeah. the lights on as it were. And we're unfortunately not far um, from, I can't believe I'm saying this, but we're not far from Christmas. If you think about uh, cash flow, it's probably, if you're getting paid monthly, it's probably three paychecks maybe until Christmas. So, um, you know, you can expect, I think, uh, um, possibly another big, a dip into the credit cards um, over the coming months too. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. You know, to me, it's no. Um, you know, one of the market darlings of the last couple of years has obviously been Afterpay. Um, to me, it's pretty insightful of where the consumer is really at that a business like that would be kicking the goals that they are. If, if consumers were flush with cash and feeling confident, they wouldn't need to be putting sub thousand dollar purchases effectively on a you know it's, another, it's yeah. another form of credit kind yeah. of thing yeah. um so i i think um as i say the headline results for the economy are good the rba is not going to be in any um any rush to move rates i, I remember a year ago or nearly a year ago november last year when i was last on this show i thought the rba would actually cut to 1.25 this year that's not going to happen now um although i still do think their next move will end up being down so you know i think i think the the outlook for the economy is Things are okay right now, but I think the you know the underlying picture is deteriorating, and 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 housing sadly is a big part of that. Construction is obviously peaked and it's going to decline, um, and housing wealth is is being hit. I think um, if you look at what's happening in the sort of the, the mortgage space and and the new debt that's being written, I think a lot of fuel has come off the fire now. So high LVR loans, interest only loans. Uh, whether it's because like, yeah, gone, yeah, yeah. gone. So there's there's no new fuel coming onto the fire, as it were, or, or very little. Um, but I think there's a three to four year period where the market needs to adjust to all of that speculative activity that came in in 2015, 2016. Which is, I think that's um, a fairly. I think that's probably where you know, probably the base case. I think looking at, at this objectively, that there's we're going to have a few years now maybe two three years of kind of fairly 
consistent declines in house prices in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, uh, but can I ask how worried you are about it? Um, Personally, not very, because I'm not a, I'm not a property owner on the east coast, so I don't have exposure. Other than obviously, I own some bank shares, and if it gets gets unruly, then they're, then they're going to get hit. Um, look, I'm I'm worried about it in the sense that you know New South Wales and Victoria have been epicenters of growth over the last two to three years in in the country, and a lot of that has been because of the construction and because of the wealth effect that rising house prices have have I suppose showered on the the, the population. So even if we don't get a, a massive price crash, and let's hope that doesn't happen, you know, if, if you if you see property prices on the east coast fall ten to fifteen percent in nominal terms, add inflation in over three to four years, you're talking twenty five percent in real terms. Given just how high a concentration Australia's household wealth is in housing, right? That is that is going to put a major uh, you know major spoke in the wheel for retail sales for broader economic activity. So. I don't see how the RBA can possibly raise rates in that environment. Um, I don't see, I, I think that job growth will struggle. It's obviously had a great, you know, its recent result was fantastic, but I think jobs growth will struggle on the East Coast if the wealth effect is going into reverse and if housing construction's um, peaked. I also don't think the federal election's gonna help. I think Westpac had some interesting research out that looked at the sort of pace of job growth and it almost always yeah, it, declines yeah. leading into the election, yeah. uh, which makes sense, yeah. um, especially given Labor. I mean, Labor are almost certain to win and obviously they're talking about scrapping negative gearing. So that's you know, particularly acute risk right now. Um, so I'm I'm worried about it. I don't think it's going to get as bad as what, as I say, the more alarming commentators are, uh, are suggesting. But... You know, that's why I suppose when I look at the Aussie economy, I see not only lower rates for longer, but I see the RBA will actually end up having to cut, especially if funding costs for the banks sort of stay where they are or even creep up a little bit and they are Which they have to, been doing. Which they have been doing. And we're looking at two more um, hikes from the Fed now. So um, uh, I think it's a lock, um, uh, September, December. Um, so... Um, so and then th that is part of that matrix for the funding costs for for the Australian banks, um, and we covered this on details in detail. If anybody wants to go back and listen to it, we covered this in enormous detail with Martin Wetton from ANZ um, uh, a couple of months back. Uh, you'll find it in the in the archive on the podcast. Uh, he goes into great detail on how all of that bank funding works, um, and. Um, Basically, this upward rate pressure uh, offshore, um, which is happening, uh, is feeding through to the system. That's now what we've seen, 16, 17 basis points maybe from, um, I think it's between 12 and 17 for the for the majors in the last few weeks. That is going to take a little chunk out of people's budgets, but it's, you know, yet another thing uh, that households don't need right now. We're, you know, uh, we got our water bill the other day and... If, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, so... Um, uh, so, you know, it's just another, uh, I think, um, uh, factor for, for households to, you know, and all of this then is less disposable cash for those services and those other businesses that have been, been so supported by uh, the growth that we've seen in the last in the last few years. Right? That's right. And, you, and you've, got to, you've got to look and, and, I mean, whilst we've seen a pullback in property prices, particularly in, say, units in Sydney and, um, and the like, I mean, I went to, a, just as an anecdote, I live in Roselle, Balmain. I went to a open inspection on the weekend. I often go and have a little bit of a look around the area. Uh, a two-bedder with a very, very, you know, not particularly great view of the water. They still want 1.7 million and it's gonna rent for 775 bucks a week. 
So your net yield by the time you've paid strata is sub 2%. So, and it was very, very interesting because I've been going to, walking into those sorts of places for a couple of years now. Now, if you didn't call the agent and beg to be able to buy the place on the Monday morning a year ago, you never heard anything. Every time I walk into a place like that now, I can guarantee by 10 o'clock Monday morning, the agent is now calling you, or in this case me, going, do you want to make an offer? I know they've I know they've asked for one seven, but they will entertain anything, you know, just throw us a number kind of thing. So clearly, you know, you then think, well, there was that many investors that piled in. They're now, they're clearly losing money on a, on a year-to-year basis in terms, you know, there's, there's no yield. So a lot of them could just go, look, this is just not working out for me. Um, and if, if enough of them start to move out of the market, then you could you could very easily see the market gap from sort of 5% down to 10% down, as it were, or, you know, 8 to 12 or something like that. So I think there's, you know, let's hope it doesn't get un- unruly, but the risk is to the downside. I think that's that's a for, for, for the RBA? For, yeah. Well, for the RBA, for local housing. For, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, look, uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, our guest this week has been Jordan Alessio, Chief Economist at ABC Bullion in Sydney. Uh, Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a fascinating chat. Pleasure. I've been uh, had a great time. Look forward to doing it again. Uh, show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at BIAUS. You can find the show on iTunes under Devils and Details or on whatever podcasting platform you use. Uh, don't forget to uh, rate us, subscribe, and leave us a review. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Uh, I'm Paul Hogan.